This morning, I want to talk about where we find our love, who we find our love, obedience, and trust in. I'm preparing us to take communion. I want to open up the scriptures from 1 Corinthians 11 to begin with, just to read them. I've got a few slides and a few other things to show. I'm well aware some of us take in things through the ear. I'm certainly one of those. Others take things in through the eye. But actually, it's the presence of God that actually we need, not clever ways of communicating. When God is present, you know it. We know it. And uh, we want that to be very real when we take communion later on. Now, I just want to read from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 and 25, and I'll open these up shortly. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And earlier on in this letter, verse 14 of chapter 10, he encourages his readers to flee idolatry. And then in verse 16, talks about this. Is not the cup of blessing, which is where we're coming to in communion shortly, which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And then he goes on in verse 21 to say this, You cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And when you read that, you think, what on earth is a cup of demons? I'll explain a little bit more about that as we go on. But the main focus is preparing us to take from the cup of the Lord. Now, we all are made for worship. There are a lot of guys in church who say, you know, I don't really do extravagant worship. It's not for me. I'm introverted. I like a slow meditation. I like to just rest and sit in the chair. And that's fine if that's the way you're wired, and this isn't having a comment on anyone in this church at all, but if you put the first few slides up, Jeff, here's some guys extravagantly worshipping their God on a Saturday afternoon. Quiet, introverted people, men who wouldn't say boo to a goose in church or boo to a goose to their wife, because they're frightened to death that she might say something back. They get out on a Saturday afternoon, and I've been there, because I, when I go to a football match, I observe. Colin knows this. When I go to a football match, I observe. And you get a guy, seven stone ringing wet in Saints, saying, come on, then if you think you're hard enough, come on, have a go. Or if, they, if you're at Villa, it'd be, come on, have a go, if you think you're hard enough. Because <laughs> when I first went to watch football, I used to watch Villa. And every now and again, I thought, do I preach to you in my great Birmingham accent so that you will remember it more? But that's how they, that's how they spoke up there. 
if you go to watch Wolverhampton or Birmingham, they say, come on the Wolves, come on the Villa. And you would get these guys who are very introverted, seven stone ringing wet, but absolutely shouting with extravagance. And every now and again, I've thought, I would love to be in a Star Trek context where I could say to the person in the Enterprise, beam everyone up in this stand, apart from this little guy who's trying to have a go with these Newcastle fans over there, and then we'll see what he's made of. But I'm not that, uh, not, you know, Newcastle fans are not all, you know, this guy's a, a gentle giant. And uh, so, but th these guys worship, if you continue on, they even pray. Now, before I was a Christian, I've got to say this, football is not my number one god. It never was. I love football, but actually, cricket was. And every time Ian Botham came out to bat, I'd be going, oh God, I wasn't a Christian. Oh God, I want him to score 100. He's got to score. And when he was out, it was, oh, what a, what a waste. Now, I'd like to say to my shame that that doesn't, I'd like to say to my credit, that doesn't still happen. But actually, Kevin Peterson took over from Ian Botham. <laughs> and we were at Centre Parks once, and... Uh, Kevin Peterson was playing against Pakistan, and I thought, oh, fantastic. Go off and do stuff. I'm, I'm sitting in the bar. I'm just going to watch Kevin Peterson score 100. And he was out for a first ball duck. And it, for the next hour or two, I was really miffed, thinking, this is not fair. You're not hearing my prayers, Lord. So don't tell me that people who don't turn up to church don't pray, because they do. I used to pray before I was a person who was part of the church. I still pray now. Thankfully, you're probably saying. <laughs> and uh, I don't pray for Ian Botham. Well, next one. Now, Stonehenge, 21st. All the sun worshippers go there because they think, oh, we're going to worship the sun. The problem with worshipping the sun, it's creation, not creator. But if you want to turn to the next slide, it can burn you. <laughs> now, you can spend time in the presence of God all day and not get burnt. You'll get heartburn in the right way. He won't do you any damage. But how daft worshipping a God, inverted commas, that after 20 minutes you're burnt and you can't actually look at it anymore. That's what happened to this guy. Looks a bit like Gerald Coates, those who know who Gerald Coates was, but it's not. Next slide. Some people, they like to worship their possessions and properties. This is a Rolls Royce being carried away. Now, quick survey. Has it? Well, no. <laughs> could be. Yeah, it could be, actually. It could be the, uh, the old geezer in the fast show. Now, how many of you have ever seen a Rolls-Royce broken down? Two, three. How many of you have ever seen it with the AA? Was it with the AA truck? Yeah. Okay, now I'm going to ask you a question. How many of you have seen a Ford Escort, a Ford Capri, etc., etc., or a Mondeo, or whatever, any other car broken down that was made by Fords. Most of us. Now, I never and never will own a Rolls, but some people they worship their possessions. And people have a Rolls Royce, they, they will never break down, this never goes wrong. Well, every now and again it does, as we can see here. Next one. No, there's another picture of my favourite politician at the moment. Here he is. Now, now, I'm not making any political comment. A few years ago, my son would have been here. Loads of young people 
see something in this guy. Now, forget your politics. They see something in this guy they don't see in necessarily other politicians. Now, I hope they don't worship him because he'll disappoint them. But we've got to wake up to the fact that people worship, they worship things, worship people, worship projects, worship football teams. Now, this morning, I want to just talk very briefly about what it is about worship, why Jesus should be the only one who has prime of place. Why? And some of the false things that we worship that are drinking from the cup of demons. How you drink from a cup of demons, you worship an idol all the time. An idol in itself is nothing. Nathan and myself are praying for someone who's got some idols in their house. In and of themselves, they're nothing. It's the worship that you give it, and then the demon comes behind that worship because Satan and demons love to be worshipped. And if they see an idol that you're worshipping, it's, ah, right, through this window we can get access into this person. There's nothing particularly demonic about some of the pictures that we see or some of the images that we see. Some Christians would like to say that there are. It's actually the spiritual power behind it, attached to our worship of it, that's the issue. Now, next slide. No, that's, that's, no back, to the, uh, back to the other one. The words one, the first word one. Right, I put here, who do I love, trust, and obey? We're doing a marriage in two weeks' time of Kevin and Christine at the church centre. They're not Christians, but they came to us in October and said, we want to actually get our marriage before God. Will you marry us? And I will always say yes to that, because it's a great thing to marry before God and to honour marriage. And they will exchange vows that they may say some of these kind of words, to love, to trust, and obey. But there is a primary loyalty that only one person deserves and can have. And that is Jesus Christ. You cannot give your full heart attention, etc., 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 in a way to someone else that only is the unique place that Jesus has. And I'll come on to that as to why. Three quotes here. You won't normally hear me quoting John Calvin or Martin Luther. But let's honor them, the fact that it is the 500th year of the... Reformation, and they did say some good things. Friedrich Nietzsche, German philosopher, said there are more idols in the world than there are realities. Well, if there are six billion people in this world, and six billion people are prone to worship things other than God, even Christians at times, you can see why what he said made sense. Uh, John Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory. I don't always like that kind of language, but it's true but what Jesus Christ can do is remove the idol factory and make it a dream factory for him. He can make it a, a, your heart a theater of dreams that think big for the kingdom of God. But you've got to have Jesus there for the dreams to come. Otherwise, it just becomes an idol factory. I've been spending time recently, over the last few days, asking, Lord, what are the things that I've cherished more than you? And I've been quite shocked. The things that I thought I cherished, I don't. Because I can give up certain things and I don't care if I don't ever do it again or ever drink something again or eat. It doesn't bother me. But there are certain things. Oh, hang on, this one's really quite uh, close. And I'll come on to that shortly. Just by way of personal testimony, also to encourage you that we all have these things. Martin Luther, he said this, there is an inward curvature in every human heart. What that means is, even when we try our best, with our best motive, even 
a, you know, a best altruistic motive without God, without Jesus, there's always some spin-off that we want for ourselves. And that's true even of Christians. The number of times I've done something and I've enjoyed more that sort of, that was really good what you did this morning for me. I've enjoyed more that than I have the Lord saying you did that for me. I don't know if I'm the only one, but that does happen. Moving on to the next slide. What soil do idols grow in? And this is uh, just an alliteration for those of you who like to remember things. Three very quick places. I could go, you could take a week on all three of these. Religious life. We can make our religious life an idol where church becomes more important than God. Our favorite songs are more important than knowing Jesus. Our favorite Bible, our favorite doctrines. We might make an idol of a ministry or a title or a label or a church. We might make an idol of all kinds of religious stuff. The way we let the children out at 10 past 11. It can't be any earlier. Any, that's, that's sacrosanct. And how you, we'll come on to it in a minute, how you can expose and show where you've got idols in religious life. It's very dangerous. People have gone to war on this. Jesus Christ came to bring one new humanity in Christ. There is more conflict in the Middle East because of religious idolatry about whether this people are chosen, that people are chosen. We're all chosen in Jesus Christ. Male and female, Jew and Greek, old and young, etc. doesn't mean to say we don't have particular doctrines that we love to honor and things that we may access Jesus through. But as soon as you start bringing division, gossip, slander, misrepresentation, racism, all of that kind of stuff into the church or into the world in the name of religion, don't tell me it's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not going to be the author and the one who puts his signature on any of that. And we need to be praying for the peace of God in the Middle East. I love praying for Jews, but I love praying for Palestinians and Arabs as well. I don't have the answers in how it's all going to work out, but I know it will all find its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And then you get other things in religious life. The Bible that you read. Certain, I have to, had to repent. I never read the Message Bible because of intellectual pride. I'm not reading that trashy little Bible that's been written together by Eugene Peterson just because it's accessible to people who can't study the real thing. What an arrogant, intellectual, proud idol that was in my mind. The Message has won many, many young people to Christ because it's an interpretation, a translation that's accessible in a way that some of the translations that I read are not. And then we may have our favorite preachers or favorite teachers or favorite camps or favorite denominations or favorite institutions. And they can become bigger and more important than Jesus. And anyone or anything that becomes more important than Jesus is an idol. It needs to bow the knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Relational life. I want to turn here to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Verses 34. And I'm going to read to 38. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. 
For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Now, we don't read into those kind of verses that we don't love our children, we don't love our husbands, we don't love our wives, we don't love our friends. What Jesus is saying here is that the primary love in your life is to be me. And there's a major reason for this. When I first married Fiona, I was marrying a mother figure as much as a mother, as much as a wife. I was wanting her to fulfill for me even some of the messianic things that only God could do. Not only will that cripple me, it will cripple her because she can't do what only God can do for me. That's why Jesus is saying this. Don't put a yoke on someone else that they can't meet because it can only be me that does it. The number of marriages that fall apart and people walk out of a marriage because my wife wasn't up to scratch, my husband wasn't up to scratch, and you think they never will be because what you're looking for can only be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It cannot be fulfilled in an idolatrous understanding of marriage. Love your wife, love your husband, love your kids. Now, we've nailed that one a long time ago, but up pops David. And suddenly I find myself, sorry, Amy, I'm not going to mention you today because you're here. And, and uh, your mom is, but I can get away with it because I've shared that before. But your children can become an idol. And you begin to start, you've got to stand back and think, I cannot have... David, in front of you, Lord. I cannot have Amy in front of you. Not because I don't love them, but because if I do, I will be looking to them to provide for me what only God can provide, and they'll disappoint me. That's why Jesus has to be more important than any brother or sister in Christ, particularly any pastor. Anyone looking to me to fulfill your needs your reputation, somehow promote you in the kingdom of God, you're going to be incredibly disappointed. Because if Jesus doesn't want to promote you, I can't. If he doesn't want to give you a grace, I can't. If he isn't behind what you're doing, I can't get behind it in proxy. The job of a church pastor, elder, leader, whatever you want to call him or her, amongst others, is to see what God is doing in a person's life and do everything they can to make way for that and facilitate it. Not to be a God substitute. Not to be someone who comes along and says, well, don't worry, I can make this happen for you because I'm the super pastor. I'm the one who's got the Bible college training. I'm the one who's got the denominational clout. I can make this happen. It puts an undue pressure on church leaders because they can't be God. And you will be very, very sad and disappointed when they don't deliver. Equally, we can't make church our God or idol, relationally. We will let one another down. That's why we're going to come to the covenant cup soon, because we're going to come to drink from the one person who doesn't let us down. Never has. Recreational life. 
What I mean by that is it's quite obvious. Some of us may have idols of money, sex and power, hobbies. Some of us may, we'll come on to it in a minute, the idol test, and then we'll, then we'll come on to the cup of the Lord. But it's important that we diagnose these things correctly. I had an appendix that needed taking out in 1989. If I'd have been born in the previous century, I'd have been dead because it was about to explode and burn with all kinds of stuff. I didn't want my doctor to look at me and think, oh, well, just go home and have an aspirin. There, there, it'll be all right. A little bit of food poisoning, you'll be all right. You need the diagnosis. Pressing in here, the reflex on the other side, bang, you nearly hit the ceiling because it's painful. In you go, out it comes. Any day or two longer, young man, you would have had peritonitis, very serious inflammation of your appendix. Now, the stupidity of me in those days, this sort of macho, I used to idolize macho men. I've got to watch it that I don't now. That's why I liked Ian Botham, John Conte. I could reel them all off. I grew up in a culture where if you didn't drink a beer at 18, there was something wrong with you. And I mean that. Uh, it, it was not a culture I boast about. And two days before this diagnosis, you were there, weren't you? It was in Darwin Road. I was sweating all over the place. No, I'm going to get through this. I've got a football match I'm playing this afternoon. I'm playing in goal. I'm going to do this. I'm going to play. And I did play in goal, and we did win. <laughs> the next day, we had a lady called Debbie Stilling around, I think it was, for lunch. And I was on the floor, sweating, rolling around in pain. And she said, I don't think you've got food poisoning. You've got something more serious than that. Oh, I'll just take an aspirin and see what it's like tomorrow. S tomorrow morning, still uh, went to the doctors. Rest is history. It's important that we, you know, don't allow our idols to prevent us receiving what God wants to give us. The idolatry of me wanting to come across as a macho bloke, someone who doesn't sort of need doctors or surgeons or has a filling without a sort of injection. I remember going once for a root filling and I said, I don't need one. He said, you jolly well will need one. <laughs> and whew, face out like there, Woo, whoosh, boom. Moving on, next slide. Why does communion help cleanse us from these idols? Firstly, and we'll go back to the passage that we read here. Firstly, if we go back to 1 Corinthians 11. I mean, it's crazy. This is another idol of mine. Wanting to get to the page and the book quicker than anybody else to show that I know where everything is. And the Lord may just deliberately just sort of, you know, there you are, Simon. You're not as quick as you think you are. It's riddled in all of us, if you know what I mean. But thankfully, God's so gracious. He takes us as we are and works on us. So the cup that's going, let's go back to the, to, the, to, the, um, to, the, to the cup of thanksgiving and so on, Jeff, the next one, the one we had before. That would be really helpful. Okay. Verse 24. When we take communion, it's a cup of thanksgiving. Verse 24. He gave thanks. He broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. One of the ways in which we can be free of idolatry is to cultivate a heart of thanksgiving towards the Lord. One of the questions in the idolatry checklist, can you give thanks for what you're watching, for what you're worshipping? 
Can you give thanks for what you're doing? Can you give thanks for what you're thinking? Cultivating a heart of thanksgiving. I think it's Psalm 50, verse 23. In the NIV it says, Those who worship me with thank offerings prepare the way for me to show them my salvation. And that salvation is a continual present reality of the presence of God. In the presence of the Lord is fullness of joy. Let's just do this for two minutes to prepare our hearts before we take communion. Just two minutes of just one sentences where we give thanks to Jesus. Just shout out things that you're thankful for. I'll start. Thank you. Don't treat me as I deserve, Lord. Thank you that you've rescued me from some of my idols. Thank you for your amazing creation. Thank you for your outrageous grace. Thank you for your amazing love. Thank you that you don't change, but always the same. Thank you that you call me your child. Thank you for food. Now, I've got to stop you there. We could have continued for an hour plus doing this. Why don't we? Why don't we cultivate a spirit and heart of thanksgiving and thankfulness? Why? Because of the temptations out there to draw us away from the one who only should be given love, trust, and obedience. And when we do, what a wonderful flow of things that we can be thankful for. It's the greatest way to avoid idolatry is to cultivate a thankful spirit to the living God. If you can't thank God for something, you shouldn't be doing it. If you can thank him for it, it puts him in the rightful place. Thank you for my wife, Fiona. She's number two in my life, and that's true. Thank you for David and Amy. They are number three in my life, and that is true. It wasn't always true, but it is genuinely, as much as I can say that with a clear conscience. But it's cultivating a spirit of thankfulness that elevates the Lord over and above potential. Because the thing about idols, most of them can be good things. There's no one in this church, I dare say, that doesn't have a whole load of very good things in there. It's the good things that can become snares. But thankfully, when we thank God, that is when orders are reordered in priority. Cup of remembrance, verse 25. In the same way, he took the cup after the supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, we are remembering the disciples who first heard this would have been at a little bit more of an advantage because they'd walked with Jesus. But we have the Holy Spirit with us who mediates the presence of God because he is God. Cultivate a heart of remembering what Jesus has done. That's when we take communion. What has he done on the cross? Well, let's just practice this because we're preparing our hearts for communion. Just speak out. What can you thank God for in terms of remembrance of what he's done on the cross? 
Thank you for your blood shed that is greater and bigger than anything in my history or anything farther in anyone else's history. I thank Lord that I remember that day that I first heard that you went up to the cross instead of me. We thank you for rescuing the thief off the cross at the last minute that whilst somebody's alive, it's never too late. Yep. Again, for time, we could keep going on. Third one, verse 26, a cup of proclamation. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. The book ends. The incarnation is not just simply when Jesus came by virgin birth. It's his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his certain second coming till he comes again. When we give a cup, when we thank God and proclaim the proclamation of Jesus, again, it, dis, dis, it dethrones idols. Most of our idols are rooted in this time and space, money, sex, and power, etc., etc. When we acknowledge the proclamation of the Lord's second coming, the things of this world become dim and distant. Now let's do this. Let's proclaim the Lord's coming. I'll start, but different ones shoot out afterwards. We won't have a long time. Father, I thank you that one day you are certain to come and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and like that God Dagon in the temple, they will collapse at your feet and every eye will see who you are. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Okay, this is also a pattern of how we should be worshipping. People bringing something every week of being thankful for whatever aspect of the grace of God that is relevant and real for them. Finally, we'll go to Luke twenty-two fifteen. I'll read this. It's a cup of suffering and joy. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So there's an earnest desire to take the Passover before I suffer. This wasn't some reluctant God going to the cross on our behalf. And with suffering and joy, and this is really important actually, I'm going to just spend 30 seconds to a minute on this. Some of us as Christians, we focus too much on repentance. And we beat ourselves up. And we begin to start to think, the more I suffer, the more spiritual I am. And sometimes we can get very heavy, and we can project that heaviness onto other people and all kinds of guilt. 
Others of us, we spend too much time rejoicing without repentance. And our rejoicing can be superficial, where we start rejoicing at things that aren't really more than just mediocrity. What we need is a cup of joy and suffering in equal measure. We repent into the joy and kindness of the living God that we then rejoice in because he is the object of our repentance. Repentance in itself is no good. We need to be repenting towards the kindness and the reality of who our God and Savior is. Otherwise, it becomes very heavy and very morose. So when we come to the cup and the wine and the bread, symbols remembering the body and the blood of Christ, yes, we come in a broken and repentant way, but this cup, we haven't got time to look at it, is also a cup of joy. For the joy set before him, Christ endured suffering. It is a cup of forgiveness. It is a cup of reconciliation. It is a cup of healing. It is a cup of transformation. It is a cup, and I could go on and give you 50 reasons why Jesus died on the cross that actually are earthed in what we're doing now when we break bread and drink this cup. Equal measure. Really important. I have to have, if I'm honest, with Fiona and myself, we balance each other out well. I can do the inappropriate repentant bit really well. Beat myself up, you know, bam, 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 And Fiona will say, you're harder on yourself than God is. And every now and again, you don't mind me saying this, do you, Fiona? Every now, every now and again, every now, every now and again, every now and again, only occasionally, I might say, every now and again, Fiona, I can't rejoice in some of the things you find really exciting. Uh, and she says, why? And then I'm stuck for words. <laughs> and it might be just my temperament that needs to change. But um, they're, they're just some of the things that help cleanse us. Now, this is the MOT quick list before we break bread. This is the MOT idle list. If we put that one up. How do we know? How can we, you know, don't read that now. Read Colossians 3, 1, 5 another time. These are some of the questions that I ask myself. And I found this very helpful reading Tim Keller's book. Most of what I brought this morning isn't just from Tim Keller, by the way. I can assure you of that. I'm not one of these who just downloads someone else's stuff. But this was very helpful. What or who do you enjoy daydreaming about? What or who occupies your mind when you have nothing else to think about? Quite often we use the excuse of busyness. I often ask people, what do you do when you're on holiday? Or when you have a day off? And sabbatical days off are very, very important because the Sabbath will really test where and who the source of our strength and resourcing is. When people say, oh, I can't have a day off, I'm too busy, I think, well, maybe your busyness is your idol because actually we are needing a creatorial Sabbath to rest in who God is. How do you spend your money? Our patterns of spending often reveal our idols. How do you respond to unanswered prayer and frustrated hopes? A blocked goal. I mean, Fiona will tell you so often, I, we call them blocked wishes because of a film we watched. I can get really irritated if things don't get answered the way I feel they should. And you have to start asking, well, what's going on here? And sometimes we use prayer, particularly in charismatic circles, and we can often use prophecy to do this, to police and manipulate the environment to get what we want. 
And when God says, well, actually, I'm not listening to that because I've got an agenda of my own, you get frustrated. Because what's happening is the Lord's showing who's boss and you're not. And you're... Then when you begin to start to yield, you begin to start to get freed up from that stuff, you're far more relaxed when things don't work out or pan out the way you intended or thought they would. Do I think I must have this thing to be fulfilled and significant? Next ones. To who or what do I look for life sustaining stability, security, and acceptance? Where do you look for power and success? Has something or someone besides Jesus Christ taken title to your heart's functional trust? What that means is you can believe that Jesus is Lord in the mind, but then the way you practice, it's the opposite, the way you function. Preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear and delight. What would make you happy? Is there anything or anyone operating in the place of Jesus Christ as your real functional salvation and saviour? What is bringing you comfort, satisfaction, peace and hope? Nothing wrong with the good things that God's given us. But if we cultivate a spirit of thankfulness and so on, all the good things that he's given us get put into their rightful place. Next one, last one. What or who do we love finding significance, trust finding security and obey giving our loyalty? How do I spend my spare time? What or who captivates my private time and space? Can I give thanks to the Lord with a sincere heart for what I'm thinking, acting out and living for? I'll finish with this for blokes because I know blokes can often struggle with this. We can't thank God here today and worship him and then go home and watch inappropriate stuff on our phones and television. That's just, you can't give thanks for that. We can't have a conversation here that's full of fresh water and then go home and start gossiping. You can't do that. You can't give thanks for that. 